welcome to the Cross Loganville's podcast channel. Thanks for joining us as we continue our series on Tension, the Struggle is Real. We are concluding a five-part series on tension today. And so they said, let's save the tensest for last. And uh, do we have any gingers on staff? Yes, Rick, okay. Let's get him up there, because who knows what could happen then. And uh, just kidding. Uh, I... I'm certainly willing to navigate tension for the sake of growth. Don't enjoy it for its own sake or unless it's necessary. And so for that reason, I'm not allowed to participate in office pranks anymore. Uh, and that is because at least once the whole thing was my idea. It was a great idea. Uh, but I felt so bad after we had set it up that I like went and told the dude before, you know, he discovered it. I was like, oh, I'll help you clean it up, whatever. And uh, so Dustin and Nick both said, you're not going to be part of the team anymore. Um, I may end up being pranked, but I don't get to participate on that level. But uh, anyway, um, Karen and I, uh, you know, we're married, and so sometimes in marriage, sometimes there's tension. You guys know this. And uh, one issue that, I don't know if this is healthy, but we don't even talk about anymore at all, okay? And this particular issue is uh, over whether it is possible for Kara and I to watch a romantic comedy together, Okay. Uh, she thinks that we can, and I take the opposite view of this, all right? And uh, uh, however, when anyone is, you know, trying to develop a real peace, you know, you have to find what you agree on, even if it's little. And there is one example in which Kara and I heartily agree, absolutely. Uh, there's one example of a rom-com that we are willing to watch, even if it's just by ourselves, because it's a classic. And uh, it stars Jeff Daniels and Jim Carrey, and it is called Dumb and Dumber, okay? And, <laughs> and uh, I know it's some of like the Hollywood elite, you know, who are, uh, you know, out of touch with the people might say, I could foresee them saying that Dumb and Dumber is not a romantic comedy. I could see them saying that, um, and I would say, well, again, let's agree on what we can. Uh, it is a uh, comedy. I mean, everybody agrees with that. And then secondly, is it romantic? I would say if you have a heart, then yes, okay? And uh, if you don't, I can like just go criteria-based. That's fine. Uh, and the first part, you know, of many rom-coms is love at first sight, which is what happens if you're familiar with the movie. Um, Lloyd is one of the dumb people and falls in love with her instantly. And then uh, second part is that in romantic movies, often two best friend guys fight over the girl. And that happens too. Harry likes Mary as well. And then the other thing is they travel across the United States to bring her a suitcase that she forgot. And so they travel across the country uh, to give her this. And then finally, there is an iconic, critical romantic line that happens, like this moment where, you know, like the peak. And uh, in Jerry Maguire, I've not seen this, but I've seen the clip where he says, you complete me, right? That's the big thing. In Dumb and Dumber, I'm actually gonna show you the clip right now, the critical moment here. What do you think the chances are of a guy like you and a girl like me ending up together? Well, Lloyd, that's difficult to say, and we really don't hit me with it. Just give it to me straight. I came a long way just to see you, Mary. Just, least you can do is level with me. What are my chances? Not good. You mean not good like one out of a hundred? 
I'd say more like one out of a million. So you're telling me there's a chance. So no one raised their hands in first service, but which guys have been that guy? Anyone? A little bit of humility in here. Thank you, gentlemen. And ladies, who has known someone like that? Um, okay, you're protecting their reputation. That's nice. Oh, sometimes it's successful, so that's really good when that happens. Um, but our, uh, our man, Lloyd, here gives us a perfect example of the topic we're going to be speaking on today. Uh, he did the opposite of what I'm recommending we do, but the topic today is... Uh, receiving, interpreting, and responding to feedback wisely, okay? As Christian people, as students of Jesus, how, what is our relationship with feedback, okay? And so uh, I think that even if you're a person who has no interest in God at all, uh, you know, secular, you know, not even interested, right? I could still argue uh, that, uh, I imagine most people would see that Dealing with feedback is an essential human skill. I mean, like, no one gets to not do this, okay, and live a flourishing life. So, for instance, uh, Winston Churchill in World War II is leading the United Kingdom, and it's not looking good for them at all. I mean, like, they're getting bombed nightly. The rest of Europe has fallen. And there's even people in his own government that are talking about signing treaties, and he is tough. I mean, like, this guy doesn't back down ever. Extremely forceful personality. And so he does not allow anyone to quit. I mean, like, he gives these incredibly inspirational speeches. He's extremely perseverant. And, uh, but he knew that the same force of personality that kept them from signing any treaties uh, could also be terribly intimidating to the guys that worked for him uh, who were afraid of being shot by the, you know, like being shot because they're the messenger, you know. Uh, and so he had to, like, tell people to their face, I'm not kidding about this. Uh, I have no need for yes men. I need you to tell me what you actually know, or we're, we're just not going to win if I don't know what's going on. And so this is a case, you know, of someone absolutely knowing how valuable feedback is. And then secondly, uh, if one wants to get married someday, like you really got to figure out how to read social cues, okay? Uh, whether you're a person of faith or not, that's like a basic competence, very important. Uh, now, however, I'm a pastor, and my specific interest is Christians becoming disciples, like people who are saved by Jesus, who have a relationship with Jesus, becoming students of Jesus. And uh, I think if that's going to happen, it's fundamental for three reasons that students of Jesus become expert receivers, interpreters, and responders to whatever feedback we are getting in the real world, okay? The first reason is because it is the testing of our faith that produces perseverance. I'm going to go into that later. But the testing of your faith happens when feedback is happening. And that can be good, where you're tempted to be prideful, or it can be really discouraging when the feedback's bad. And this can have anything to do with people, money, results in a work project. I mean, like, our, that's where our faith is tested, is when we get feedback in some form. Secondly, uh, the, Jesus said that Christians would be known for our love for each other. And church unity, whether it is a local body or interdenominationally, right, different denominations are getting along together, that trust in the Lincoln relationship is going to be comprised of whatever feedback has been given over time. The habits of feedback 
uh, I believe there's something like 30,000 denominations in the United States under the Christian umbrella, okay? And I, my bet is that it would only be 15,000 <laughs> instead of 30,000 if, lo I mean, everyday local Christians in leadership uh, were able to process and respond to feedback more skillfully, okay? And then third, our credibility to the world, like the credibility of Christian witness uh, is going to depend on how we uh, receive, interpret, and respond to feedback from critics, like from people who don't like Christians. Sometimes they don't like us uh, because Jesus said, you know, Christians would be rejected because of him. But I think we all know there have been enough foul examples out there to where there's a pretty understandable reason for suspicion, right? And so the way that we interact with people that we don't have faith in common with can either make them thankful that there's a God who shaped us. I mean, like, we can become the kind of people that are such a blessing that they would want there to be a God to thank for us, or it could just confirm their suspicions that we don't really take this faith very seriously, and religion has frequently been a very easy way of controlling a whole lot of people and making them act the way a group wants, right? And so the way we respond to feedback is going to really be evidence on whether we are really sincere or not, okay? So on that, t that first issue, we are personally formed. Like our spiritual growth and spiritual formation uh, is a result of how we respond to various times of feedback and what we lean on when we're getting that feedback. So last time I spoke, I think it was March 10th or something, and I gave an example of how daily events is where your faith has grown. Uh, we can overlook these opportunities all the time because they're so common, okay? But I gave the example of changing diapers as an exercise of faith, right, of being present to the Lord, uh, and then also putting your kids to bed at night. I mean, like, when you are just adoring your kid, right, in these moments of being tempted to invest your heart in treasure on earth, that's when you really got to pay attention to God and say, you're the provider of this kid, right? That's when you can really guard your heart. Today, we're going to be talking about in the middle of feedback, right? That's a really intense opportunity. So uh, one of my favorite sayings is uh, from Dallas Willard, and it's that the main thing that God and you get out of your life is the person you become, okay? Um, saving the world comes from actually saving individuals and then redeeming them, right? We're not talking about just keeping people out of hell. We're talking about restoring us and our neighbors uh, to who God really had planned for us. This looks like being able to carry the joy of the Lord, and which means being able to love neighbor, uh, because our character reflects his. We can only really enjoy God if in some ways we become like him, okay? Otherwise, we're just not going to be happy about the same things that he's happy about, right? And so that is how it develops. Uh, there is uh, an example of this, of being able to enjoy God because of who he is and not being able to enjoy God because of who he is, uh, is found first in the Psalms where if you read the Psalms, it's obvious that King David loves God. I mean, like, he just absolutely loves God. And one of the reasons is uh, because God is rich in mercy. Like, that's, what, that's one of the things he says. He praises them because he's rich in mercy. And then a few books forward, if you end up in the book of Jonah, it becomes obvious that Jonah's a pretty decent theologian. He knows who God is. He knows he's rich in mercy and resents God for it. And I'm not saying that Jonah is 
in hell. I'm just saying I don't know if he likes heaven very much because God is there, okay? And uh, he literally is telling him, I knew you would forgive these people. And then at the end of it, he's so overcome with anger. I don't know if you've seen a person so angry they can't take care of themselves. I mean, they're just, they're an explosion waiting to happen. That's Jonah at the end of that book. And he's just saying, it would have been better if I'm dead right now. That's how much uh, he hated the enemies that God sent him to preach to. And he was so angry because God actually was enriched in mercy to people who Jonah legitimately and for good reason did not like. I mean, it wasn't like a personality conflict. There was real reasons why Jonah didn't like his enemies. And so uh, I think that it's, it's, it's helpful to think about uh, that if we can't, uh, enjoy God for who he actually is. A lot of the joy of the Lord is left on the table. And a lot of the joy in the Lord comes from his love for us. But if we can't accept God's love for our enemies, we cannot accept God's love for us because it's the same thing. It's agape love. And what this means is he doesn't love people based on who they are. He loves people because of who he is. He is love, all right? This is hard. This actually is tense, all right? Um, but he, uh, yeah, I've heard it said once that you love God as much as you hate your worst enemy, right? Because God does love people based on who he is, not because of who they are. So the way that uh, we are able to appreciate this rather than just ignore or reject this part of God's character is by becoming like him. Right? by letting him shape our sense of identity, purpose, and destiny. So the way that happens in James chapter 1, you can put that up on the screen, Noah. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you, when you make trials of many kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith develops steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So that word perfect is pretty terrifying, right? I don't think it means that you never make mistakes. Uh, I think the context of both of this and in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect and love your enemies in the same way that God gives reign to the righteous and the wicked, he's talking about a consistency, character formed so that this is not hard to do in the moment. This is who we have become, so filled and transformed with joy in the Lord to where this is really it's more likely that we would love than we wouldn't, right? Because we have really become like who he is. Uh, and the times that that character is developed, again, is in the middle of tense feedback. When something is painful, um, this is when we have to lean on something. And the more we lean on God when things are tense and difficult, uh, the stronger we trust him. So uh, we'll use the example uh, not of Lloyd getting rejected, but of a hypothetical guy in my youth group getting dumped, okay? Uh, so this isn't a real person, but let's say that uh, I have a student who's 18, just graduated from high school. Him and his girlfriend are going to separate colleges, and she did break up with him, all right? So this is hard. I mean, like, it's, it's, it's tough. And so I, as a student pastor, want to coach him through this, be here for him during this difficult time. And uh, so now my history in this, picture this happening for this guy, my history with coaching young men who have been broken up with, uh, started when Kara and I both were at Southeastern University, and uh, we lived in the dorms, and, you know, this happens. Breakups happen in college. And this one time, uh, I found a very, very ther therapeutic solution. Like, this is very effective. 
I get a text at 10.30 at night, and I tell my buddy, come on over. Uh, I'm going to buy you a dollar ice cream from, from McDonald's, and I've got something I want you to listen to in my car, okay? And so he's probably thinking, you know, like Rick's got like a podcast or something like that, you know, like a sermon. And well, I get him in the car, and I press play on the CD player, and this CD was a gift. I didn't know it existed, so I didn't ask for it. It was my sister's idea to give it to me, all right? And it is a CD of a bunch of different songs where every single note is made of a different pitch of a fart, okay? And so, <laughs> theoretically, like it's kind of funny, if you listen to it, you will be crying, I promise you, which is dangerous when you're driving, which I've done before, so I don't listen to it in my car anymore. But uh, that being said, it doesn't matter who you are or who broke up with you, when you're in that car, all right, fine, we can talk about the girlfriend thing, yeah. Uh, so it was very effective, and then the ice cream really helped. Uh, but after that, um, let's picture that I'm talking to a young man in this particular type of trial, right, where the feedback was difficult for him to take. I would say, you and I both know, as students of Jesus, the project of our life is to deepen and strengthen our confidence in Jesus's identity, purpose, and destiny for us. He has an idea of who we are, what our purpose is, and where we're going, in the culture we live in has a totally different idea of who we are, what we should be doing, and where we're going. We know this. We've caught some of both, right? We're in the culture. In fact, we grew up. Sometimes that culture stuff is in the churches we grow up in. So some of the culture's in us. Some of Jesus' ideas are in us. Your identity is being tested right now because the culture's identity is reputation, what people think of you. That's usually based on what you possess and produce. But in this case... A person whose opinion you esteem, for good reason, she's a nice girl, right? You esteem her opinion, and she is not uh, returning that right now, okay? And you can feel uh, way less worthy than you did, right? Feel way less confident that you did. Whatever amount of confidence went into being dated by this person, you dated this person, that's gone now. So it hurts. We're not trying to rush out of feelings or anything. We really want healing here. This isn't like a religion is the opiate of the masses, like an Advil or something. This is like real faith work we're developing. So remember your real identity, your creator, who is love and really knows what you are and who you are. Say that the most important thing about human beings is that they are loved by God. There are other relevant facts about us. That's the most relevant one. Remind yourself of that, all right? Secondly, say your purpose is being challenged because the culture would tell us you're supposed to get your joy or sense of well-being from circumstances. And uh, the Westminster Confession, uh, you know, theology would tell us that the chief end of humankind, your purpose as a human being, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we're not supposed to get our joy and our sense that life is worth living from what's going on around us and what we have and who we have and who has us. It's a matter of enjoying God because that's the goal of our life. That's like what we're for. And if we don't do that, something will always be missing. But then also, it just so happens that God is more enjoyable than all he has made. So that's really good news, right? And now is when you can learn to lean in and enjoy God, right? And then finally, I'll tell them, your destiny is being challenged. You might be saying, am I going to end up alone? And I'd say, you're 18, so chill out, right? But uh, <laughs> you might be thinking, am I ever going to find someone? And am I ever going to have kids and all that stuff? And the exercise I go with, go through with people when they're afraid of something or they're worried about the future is something Tim taught a while ago, and that is what is the worst thing that could happen? 
if you're a human being and you were created for a relationship with God, the worst thing that could happen is that your relationship with God uh, wouldn't happen, that you would reject God, and that you would be separated from him forever, right? Because you don't want to be around him. Your values don't line up, okay? Um, the best thing that could happen is for you to have a relationship with God and be with him forever. And if you are a person who's a Christian, you trust Jesus for your salvation, the worst thing that could ever happen to you will not. And the best thing that could ever happen to you is going to, right? So that, that keep some perspective, because perspective, love this, is worth 80 IQ points. <laughs> Doesn't matter how smart you are. If you got perspective, you have an advantage. So remember this, and I would tell your destiny doesn't start when you die, you know. That the issue is not just getting you into heaven, it's getting heaven into you the more and more you love and trust and enjoy God. This is what we're doing right now. Every step can be an arrival if this is the way you understand your life. Then for more perspective, say, just get ready. There's a crisis of faith at every phase of your life. <laughs> this is the one for right now. You're going to get married, argue over where the spoons go, all right, and then where the money goes, and then whether you watch romantic comedies together. And then when you have kids, there's going to be a whole set of guarding your heart in Jesus. When you retire, your sense of identity will be challenged. Who am I now? What do I make? Is what I make the most thing, important thing about me? Or is it that Jesus loves me? And then finally, as you're getting closer and closer uh, to really, really getting to God, know God fully in heaven, your identity, destiny, and purpose is going to be of concern to you again. You will have chance after chance. Don't waste this opportunity, is what I would tell him. And then, so we can apply that to anything. We can apply that to any tension, any phase, asking, what am I trusting in right now for a sense of identity, who I am, why I'm important, uh, what I'm supposed to be enjoying and doing, and where this is all going. So secondly, uh, church unity is going to be dependent on the level and quality of feedback uh, people give each other. And uh, I think that one of the least surprising things in the world sh is that there is conflict and tension in the church interpersonally. This should be the least surprising thing in the world. And what should be the most surprising thing in the world is how Christians are able to deal with that feedback. The amount of love they have for each other, the amount of wisdom we have picked up by submitting ourselves to the scripture and its processes, right? So this is, should be one of those things that, that really show the level of commitment we have to the Lord. One of my favorite definitions of friendship is a series of risks survived, right? Tim says this all the time, relationships are not disposable. And so to just know that, like we're, uh, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, Christians don't have relationships with each other. We have relationships through Christ with each other, right? He is the bond. And so, uh, the reason we should not be surprised at the amount that there would be conflict within local churches is because I cannot think of a single organization other than a shopping mall where you're going to have little kids in utero about to be born who haven't even been born yet and people who could be over the age of 100 in the same place. And the church is the absolute opposite of a shopping mall. Who else tries to do this with all this generational difference, ethnic difference, uh, regional difference. I'm from Florida. My worldview is a little bit different than everybody else's because Florida is weird, right? So you got that. Different political differences, denominational differences. I have uh, on staff, I'm a Pentecostal. Uh, Nick came from the Methodist churches. Uh, Dustin came from the Southern Baptist. We know guys in here with Catholic backgrounds 
There is just such a difference in expectations about life that to be surprised by tension is irresponsible. Like, we've just got to know that it's going to happen, all right? And then, uh, but again, the way that we deal with it should be the thing that surprises even us because Jesus has given us the joy and love and courage and patience with each other uh, to make it through it. The, the process that I use for feedback when I have the presence of mind to do it, meaning I want to do this more often, um, I picked this up from a book called Thanks for the Feedback, which sounds boring. It is amazing. Once you start thinking about this, like feedback, you'll see it in every spot in life. It's amazing. And the book's called Thanks for the Feedback, and I have it in hard copy and audio, which is nerdy, but it's because it's so good, right? And uh, the formula she gives for giving feedback to somebody, whether it's negative, positive, whatever, is three parts. Appreciation, evaluation, and coaching. So it, this hasn't happened much of the time at all. Um, but because I'm the next-gen team leader here, uh, usually my feedback to volunteers is one, it's 99% uh, appreciation. Like, I'm extremely thankful for them. I love the people I get to work with. There have been times when you get to know people for real, right, where at some point feedback's going to need to be given if you actually love and care about a person. The proverb says that the, the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Like, if your enemy's flattering you, watch out, Okay but the wounds of a friend are faithful, which means if someone really loves you and they know that something needs to change, that's one of the most helpful things they can do, right? And so in a moment like this, the formula would be something like this. You and I both know that the goal of every cross student ministry is to develop cultures within it of worship, belonging, and growth. And because we worship, the God who loves, right? We belong to each other. It's through him that we belong to each other. Mistakes are not fatal. We're not trying to one-up each other all the time because we're way more interested in who God says we are than what others think of us, right? That's the, usually the source of the conflict, which sets us both free to grow, right? We're safe enough to talk now. And so uh, I'm going to grow in at least three ways right now. One, I'm going to have the courage to say something instead of just get irritated about it like be passive aggressive later or something. And then secondly, this is an exercise in something that most people don't do. And so my tact here is gonna get exercised. Maybe I'll be bad at it, maybe I'll learn, who knows, but tact is being developed. And then third, and I think that this is the biggest reason that most people avoid giving feedback or having a confrontation at all, and that is the third reason we grow is learning that the other side may be right and we're wrong, <laughs> Or they have such a good point that our anger can't stay. It's like, all right, fine. Now, it's not always the case. Sometimes people are totally wrong, sure. Um, but it's at, at least talking face-to-face -face with someone when they are 100% wrong tends to calm me down. I remember their humanity, right? It's like deep within us. When we do that, everything's balanced out a little bit. And so in that situation, begin with appreciation. Most of the entire world is a blind spot that we don't even notice, right? And so we need a team, and you are aware of this stuff, and I'm not. You bring skills that I don't have, and we couldn't do this without you. I do appreciate you. The evaluation is, um, you know, this or that, whatever. And then the coaching would be concrete steps, sometimes that you have to negotiate to say, yeah, well, how would this work? Like, does this fit you? Like, would it, you know, work? And then, so it's not just saying change, figure it out, right? 
It's saying, these are, let's talk about it. Let's come up with some creative ideas. And so uh, I think if we began to understand that as a way of doing things, even, and this can go with family, this can go with kids, this can go with uh, friends or, or um, whoever, even our enemies, honestly. Like we could apply that with people we disagree with per case, right, per issue with extreme differences, right? So, and then finally, the quality of our witness to the world will depend on how we receive, interpret, and respond to feedback from them. So, this to me is, I do think, the most offensive uh, passage in scripture. I've had a hard time with this a lot of my life. But in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through, or I'll, I'm just going to read uh, 44, 46, and 48. But this is the beginning where Jesus is telling us to love our enemies, okay? Don't just love the people who love you. Don't just have a reciprocal relationship because what that means is the, the liking you have is totally based on whether they like you. This makes us very reactive. It's not sourced by an extra helper in heaven, all right? Um, he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's how we would respond to the feedback of persecution. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have do not even the tax collectors do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. So two things. I've never been able to mentally stomach this. The call to perfection by itself is like, what are you talking about, right? It does help quite a bit to remember that the relationship we have with Jesus is rescued, first of all. So we're not being judged on performance, right? That's, he, he loves us despite who we are. That's the first thing. And then secondly, being a disciple of Jesus means that you're a student, not an expert, right? He's not telling you to fake perfection. He's talking about um, learning from him how he sees the world so that we know how to interact with the world the way he would, all right? And again, I think that word perfection in the context is one of consistency. So the example, again, he's used in other places in the same grouping of verses is to love the way God loves, which is to give rain to the righteous and the wicked, right? And so he's saying, um, God just does this out of mercy, right? It's who he is. We're called to treat our enemies not as they treat us, but as how God treats us and how uh, he treats them as well. It will be a miracle if you can love enemies, but everything else our faith is based upon is a miracle, all right? Um, his resurrection from the dead is a miracle. Him resurrecting us from the dead is a miracle. And any grace in our hearts that acknowledges someone else's uh, problems and like, we're not talking having a stupid, optimistic view of humans, right? We're talking about knowing how bad it is and choosing to also have the joy and love of God for them. Last week when we had the graduates go up, uh, reminded everybody of that verse where Jesus is saying, I'm sending you into uh, a context where there are, uh, he says, I'm sending you in as sheep surrounded by wolves, right? That's what he's saying. I'm sending you as sheep amongst wolves. Therefore, how does a sheep survive around wolves? And he says, be as wise as a serpent, which is representative of like the devil, right? Be as smart and aware of schemes as the devil and innocent as doves which means to have the heart that's consistent with the Holy Spirit's, right, who seeks redemption and uh, who, who loves what God loves. So it would be a miracle if we can begin to do this. Um, and he gets the credit for it. 
grace is absolutely the way this is going to happen. But there are some other things we can begin to do that would make this possible, right? And remember, the whole point of this is not to save the world. We're going to feel good about ourselves. It's not to save the world. One of my favorite uh, verses is in Acts, and it says of King David, one of the heroes of the Bible, that after David served the purposes of God in his generation, he died and was buried with his ancestors, right? Which means there's a certain time we've got to deal with things, but again, what God gets out of our life is the person we become, able to worship him. And so uh, a few things are important. Um, one, believing that Jesus is smart and he knows what he's talking about. The whole love your enemies thing, most people just utterly dismiss because it just sounds so stupid. I mean, it just sounds like so different than everything we've ever been used to everywhere. But if we let it disturb us, if we let it bother us and say, all right, I agree with Dallas Willard who says, if Jesus is who he says he is, divine, triune in nature with the creator of the universe, he's not stupid. Jesus is the smartest person to have ever walked the face of the planet, right? Or you don't believe about him uh, that he is one with God, right? So there's something to this. Everything in this, reje I reject it, but there's something to this somehow, right? Which humbles us and asks, gets us to ask questions. That's the first thing, our attitude towards Jesus. Secondly, baby, baby, baby steps. It could just be a matter of when we're in a difficult situation with someone and you're not even yelling, just disagreement, and you can tell it's getting hostile. Even just being able to control our own facial expressions uh, would be a good place to start. Um, I remember having a master's class with a lady, uh, elderly lady, and she had just mentioned, it was a social ethics class, and uh, she mentioned that when she was in the army, I mean, she had one of the most important things to do is absolutely stand there uh, and don't move your face when the drill instructor is screaming at you. Like, that's one of the most important things. This would be necessary if we're going to seek the redemption of humans because we love God who loves those humans, right? So things like this, learning to listen, learning not to just dismiss when we get triggered, right? Like when we get irritated. I know what you are. I'm done. I'm not listening anymore. It's very, very common in our culture. Um, but, but really relying on God through every step. And then again, not trying to save the world, understanding that this is for me to be able to love who God is, right? Um, another thing that I think is uh, really helpful, there's a uh, guy who studied uh, missions, he's from Australia, and he has this saying that strategy, which is what I was just talking about, different strategic moves, he says strategy gets eaten by culture for breakfast, meaning a little handful of strategies and ideas will be wiped out if you're steeping yourself in a culture, right? I mean, you can't win against all that. And so but what he's basically saying is you have to build a culture around you. You have to get some people to support you if these strategies are going to possibly succeed, right? And so when it comes to culture, um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie Monsters, Inc. Uh, I like that one. Uh, I don't love all the shows that my three-year-old watches, but uh, Monsters, Inc. is pretty fun. And uh, it's the creepiest premise you'll ever hear in your life of monsters sneaking into children's bedrooms and then canning their terrified screams, okay? That's, that sounds terrifying. But because they're like cartoons, it's like way easier to get away with. And uh, Billy Crystal is one of them. John Goodman's in there. And so the story is, they, yeah, they work for the electric company and to keep their lights lit. Uh, they go and do this. They travel through portals and scare a kid, grab their scream, and get out. I'm going to spoil this, so if you don't want to know earmuffs for a second, okay? Uh, 
So eventually, one really super cute little kid um, goes back home with the monsters. The monster says, uh, I just, he just loves the kid. He's got to take care of this tiny little kid. And he says, I can't scare kids anymore. <laughs> like, I can't do that. I got to do something else. And coincidentally, they find out, because Billy Crystal is hilarious, he's the green eyeball, okay, in that uh, movie. He discovers that children's laughter uh, is 10 times as, as powerful as the, the terror. And so what they end up doing is switching their entire power source to kids' laughter. So they start doing stand-up comedy in their rooms instead of scaring them. So, great movie. Um, we live in a culture exactly like, I'm just kidding, it's not exactly like that. Uh, we live in a situation that is similar to that in some ways. Uh, and one of them is that we have industries whose product it is uh, to sell you anger. I mean, there's some information in there. You might call it infotainment. Sometimes they're exactly right about what they're saying. Still, though, the goal is to keep you angry because you will return. And if you return, they can sell advertising dollars. And it can be a TV station. It could be a radio station. It could be just some social media influencer with a YouTube channel. I mean, it can be all kinds of things. This is an identifiable phenomenon in our culture. People who sell anger, and it's not to light their monster city, all right? It's to get extra money so they can buy a new vacation home or maybe pay off a sexual harassment lawsuit or serve their own interests in some way, all right? And so we have to keep in mind, if this is what is going into me all the time, and I'm in scripture five minutes a week and I'm exposing myself to something else for 20 hours a week, what <laughs> your strategy is going to get eaten for breakfast, right? This is what would happen. So... Um, Jesus warned us that following him does mean there's not as much we're going to have in common with our culture, right? The good news is that you have a church, right? This is another source of support and family. It's where we learn together. I love that Tim talks about that Greek verb, uh, gymnasio or something. I totally got that wrong. But the root of it is gymnasium, and it means to sweat it out and to work hard and so th this is really what the church is supposed to be, is a learning organization to support ourselves and each other as we're learning to follow Jesus and actually like who God is, all right? Uh, I'm going to pray us out, and uh, we're going to have a time of worship. Thank you so much for watching the message today. We hope that this message inspired you and challenged you as you watched it. I encourage you to check out our website. It's thecrawlsloganville.org. There's a lot of information about our church there. Uh, that maybe can help you answer some questions about who we are. And don't forget that on our website, we have old messages and archived series. So you can spend a lot of time there learning and exploring. If you have any questions, you can contact us via the web, or you could call us at the church at 770-554-3322. Thanks again for watching.